Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Uh, this is episode 14 with Ollie Belcher, who I've known for seven plus years. Ollie is an incredibly passionate person, is one of those people that you really buy into because she's all about her mission in West Bengal. In this episode, you'll hear about her formative experiences and how her dad and Mother Teresa uh, inspired her to, to go to West Bengal and, and make a difference. Embarrassing, but I used to know Ollie as Ollie Donnelly, but she's now Ollie Boucher. What do you want to run with today? Yeah, I'm happy with either. I, I, have, been, I have been married for... Um, 11 years, but <laughs> it, it was only when my children started going to school that Belch became, you know, more and more used. Um, and were you using I, I, Donnelly at work? Is that, is that how it was rolling? Were well, using... I was using Donnelly at work, but then, yeah. but then you know, it, it, it causes confusion. So just go with that. I'm going to go with Belcher. Okay, we'll go with that. And I think that runs really nicely with, the, you've got three children, right? And so all, and their first names all begin with B. <laughs> they do. If you go by their nicknames, they do. <laughs> Excellent. Love it. Um, Ollie and I uh, have known each other for probably six or seven years, uh, something like that. We met um, in London working together of sorts um, when I was at the St. James's Place Charitable Foundation and we were proud supporters of Ch- Shivia. Um, so really want to unpack that story. Ollie, would you mind giving us your kind of elevator pitch for Shivia, just what, what it's about and what it does? Sure. Um, so basically, what what Shivya is doing is we we um, try a, try and um, create livelihoods for extremely poor families in India in rural India, and so we 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 provide um, mainly women, but we work with men as well um, to a lesser extent with with business toolkits so they can start their own enterprises from home, and our the the I suppose our flagship program is poultry farming where we provide very poor women with poultry toolkits, which consist of 10 one-day-old chicks, feed, vaccinations, medication, and training for six months so they know how to start and run a poultry enterprise. And then over a two-year period, we continue with the supplying these poultry toolkits until they, they are confident to form groups with other poultry farmers and become independent of us. So they can then either run a poultry enterprise by themselves or they have the um, confidence to set up another enterprise altogether. And I tell you, for these extremely um, poor um, families, the poultry farming really is a stepping stone uh, to their own path out of poverty. Yeah. And it's West Bengal, isn't it? So it's India, but that's... Yeah, um... so, so our, main, our main focus is in, in West Bengal, um, and um, that's in northeast India, and you might know of the city of Calcutta. It's, it's, it's the state which Calcutta is in, and it's one of the poorer states in India. And it borders Bangladesh. It borders Bangladesh. Um, so we, we um, and we, you know, a lot of the, the families we work with have actually come over the border from Bangladesh. So we work with both Hindu communities and, and Muslim communities. Fantastic. And I know, um, you know, the, the impact you guys have. So one of the statements I really like is your strapline, which is livelihoods with dignity. And, and you're all about empowerment and dig- dignity, aren't you? So you're, you know, communities solving their own problems yeah so I think I think the dignity aspect is is really important because 
many of these um, poor, poor families often end up in, in um, work, streams of work, which could involve prostitution or could involve going to the cities and rag picking and, and living, living in slums and sending remittance home. Or, you know, the, 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 they end up in these types of types of jobs. So what we um, really want to do is enable these families and women to work, but in a dignified way um, and, and to be also to be able to work for themselves. So they're not at the hands of, of people who will exploit them. So it's not, you know, it's not just the, the lines of work they're in, but often they end up in, in trades such as, um, I don't know, maybe making incense sticks, but the agent will give them a very, very small amount of money to work very hard yeah. um, for, for what they produce. And, and it's just, it's basically like, feels like slave labor. I mean, one of, one of the examples actually um, of a woman I always think of in, in Bengal, who I'm extremely proud of how she's got herself away from this particular industry into her poultry farming. She, she um, used to sit there every day um, pulling the copper wires out of bicycle wheels, but the agent didn't give her anything to protect her hands and her hands were bleeding and infected and she pulled this copper wire out and he would come and take away the copper wire and give her about the equivalent of about a pound a day for doing that all day, every day. Right. And I just don't think that's a, it's less than a dignified way of earning money, you know, it, and, but she was so desperate for that one pound a day that she just did it mm. all day, every day. And, and I can't tell you now, every time I see her, the first thing she does is show me her hands totally healed, no infection. She's earning you know, three times that now by running her little poultry enterprise from home and able to feed her family. And those are, those are the sort of, um, you know, women I'm just so unbelievably proud of because they've done it themselves. Yeah. And with a little, a little, a little helping hand from us. Yeah. And to, the autonomy of that, the power of that um, independence and to stand alone economically, hugely important for women, I imagine, especially women in India, because, um, women get an incredibly tough time don't they in India yes I think I think it depends where you are in India but certainly where we are in Bengal you know um and I don't mean it's to any men out there listening but but the women do 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 you know bear the brunt of everything um in in the household and they're often actually the ones out in the the fields as the agricultural laborers picking and planting paddy all days they may, might be the ones going off to collect water at five six in the morning or sticks you know wood um for their Chulas, which are their stoves. I mean, they really do seem to be doing everything. And um, so to be able to run an enterprise from home where they don't have to be out of the house, as well as managing the household chores, is also extremely, um, you know, powerful for them because they, they can earn some money um, from, the, from the home where they also feel safe and, um, and you know, just... I suppose also just the amount of respect as well, which they, which they are, are, are getting um, from being able to from being able to earn a decent a decent income on their own from the house, as well as being able to manage everything else, is enormous. Yeah, transformative. So it's not just poultry, is it? So you, um, I saw that you have a goat enterprise. Yeah, so the goat the goats is much smaller, um, and um, because of I will talk about COVID, I'm sure in a bit, but. Because of COVID, we're not going to be continuing with the goat program much in, in the next few months, um, just because, you know, the fundraising landscape is pretty bleak. But um, it is, it's, a, it's a fantastic enterprise. And when things improve, we will be starting it up again. But it, basically what the idea is, is that we lend women, um, all these families, two goats. 
two female goats and a billy goat sort of roaming around. And um, and then they start breeding. And because they can't afford a goat up front, that's why we lend them to them. And as as they start breeding over a, a cycle of you know, 18 months, they then return half the half the herd to us. And then they have a herd themselves. Um, and, you know, goat goat meat, they don't find enough drink the milk, it's the meat is very um, highly sought after in West Bengals. It's a great little enterprise for them. Um, and we, we at the moment have about 350 farmers on the programme, but by March, they will all be able to run this enterprise independently of us. So at that point, we won't be taking on any new farmers, but we are putting together a manual at the moment so that in time, other organisations can replicate it and we can reintroduce it again. Yeah, because you talk about social franchising and which would be good to get your thoughts on that, but... And we'll, and we'll definitely talk about COVID. But before we do, just explain the poultry kits. Just the, the, like be really interesting for our listeners to get the detail on that. Yeah, so the poultry kits are basically, um, um, they start off usually with one. And, and you know, it's got those 10 one-day-old chicks in, the, the feed, the starter feed, the, 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 the vaccinations, you know, because the, the chicks, when they're very small, have uh, subject, uh, very sort of... Um, vulnerable to lots of local diseases but most importantly mark it, it it's not well it is the physical asset but it's also the training that comes with it so it's training the farmers on how to build a coop a little chicken coop with what they have with their limited resources but also natural resources within their space in the confines of their house um, it's how to feed the chicks it's how to look after them in terms of you know in bengal where we are you get extremely hot summers around may time you then get the monsoon, where there's, you've never seen anything like it. It's just this deluge of rain. And then you get the cold, very cold winters. So it's training them how to look after the, these chicks in these sort of quite dramatic um, climatic um, extremes. And then it's training them how to protect them from predators. So that's on one side. And on the other side, it's training them how to um, sell the eggs, how to sell the chicks, how to, what, they, what to do when they earn a bit of money. Um, so they don't just put it onto their mattress. They can form a group with other farmers and open a bank account and start putting money in and saving. So there's all these really important life lessons, and I suppose in basic finance, which if you come from a background where you've dropped out of school aged probably around 10 or 11 um, for these women we work with, they don't have any concept of any basic financial literacy. And these are the skills which we give them, which gives them the confidence in future to go on to either the poultry farming or indeed something else because by then they have a bit of business business sort of nous. Mm. And one thing I read on um, your impact report was that you you were proud of your response uh, in the early stages of COVID when when a lot of people weren't sure what to do. Um, so you got a lot of information out quite quickly. Uh, did you to to yeah so 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 COVID, COVID um you know um in India the, the day after um the lockdown was announced by Boris Johnson in the UK uh, President Modi in India announced a lockdown in India but the lockdown in India was was pretty severe in comparison was, and and what you what you saw was a lot of migrant um laborers returning home to the villages because they usually work in the cities and send money home um and you saw huge movements of people just going home and losing their, losing their livelihood options. Um, you know, I'm just going to give you a bit of background so then you understand our, our response. You then, then what you saw happening was um, in India, in the rural areas, you now have companies like Amazon and Flipkart, which is the Amazon equivalent, 
delivering goods to the villagers, but all that stopped. You also have a situation where people there live a very hand-to-mouth existence. They don't, they're not like we are here where we have fridges and storage for food, etc. They tend to buy their food on a daily basis. So if you're losing your livelihood and your income, you can't buy that food and you can't access basic food and goods. So what we said to our team was, we're going to get you properly protected. We're going to get local permissions, which you can do from the, the police in your different districts. And you need to get out there. Forget the poultry and the agriculture, which the other enterprise we're doing, the goats for the moment, because, you know, there's no point um, helping, you know, um, building those up if, if they can't sell the produce. But we need to get these people basic food, sanitary towels for the women, masks, so they, you know, and, and protection, so they actually can access goods, because otherwise they're going to start starving. And you've got a much bigger problem. So that's what we started doing in right. terms of distribution. We also were hearing very, you know, a lot of people there in, in India now have um, um, phones, not sometimes smartphones, sometimes normal phones. But very quickly, rumors started going around on, on um, social media saying that livestock was, the, was spreading the coronavirus. And people believe what they read. And so very quickly, you saw people slaughtering their livestock. And this is often their only form of um, subsistence. So we got our staff out pretty quickly quashing those rumors and saying this is not true. or we don't. We, it, we, we, there's no evidence for this at all. And we tried to start sensitizing the communities to the fact that this, that, you know, this is the one, this is the one thing they have in their lives. Don't just, you know, kill them. They, like, people were burying chickens alive, not not where we were, but other other communities. So that was re- a really important role of our of our team. And the messages went way beyond the farmer communities we work with. Mm. And then we and then we um, t- actually teamed up with the government, the local government, which we'd never done before, to distribute, you know, government of India flyers showing people how, you know, with all these migrant laborers coming home, how to socially distance within your household, how to basic hygiene practices of sanitizers and washing hands and soaps. So we also distributed lots of soaps. So we, we were really sort of suddenly on the front line in a way we've never been before. And I said in that to your statement, I was proud of the team because they were quick. They were, um, they were you know, responsive. And Mark, they worked 24-7 for weeks. Correct. With, yeah. with, with, you know, with nothing but the motivation of helping those communities. Yeah, fantastic. And where were you? Were you, were you there or were you, were you in England? No, I was, I was here mm. um, and um, uh, it wouldn't have actually been possible to get out there. No. Because um, also very quickly, you know, um, anyone coming into India went into a government centre quarantine for 14 days. Yeah. And also one of the things at the beginning was that COVID was very much um, a city issue. You know, cities like Mumbai, uh, Mumbai you know, the financial capital, um, and funding enough tourist areas like in Rajasthan. So Bengal at the beginning had very few cases. And I actually said to my management in Calcutta, and the same applies to me, do not go to the villages. Because if you have it, the last thing you want to be doing is responsible for spreading it, yeah. you know, you spreading it to the, to the villages because immunity systems are very different. And if people in the villages get it, they have no health care system to support them. Mm. It's woefully inadequate. Yeah. And, um, and, and so we, we, need to, we need to take responsibility for um, not, not spreading it as well as, as well as helping those communities. 
yeah and that's it, what what we did is we were you know we were um we were obviously on calls the whole time with with the local team and and i, I mean from to be absolutely honest with you it wasn't my position to say what to do i was really hearing from them what they thought they should be doing yeah and saying yes get on with it and giving them the encouragement to do it because quite frankly what am i what am i to know from six thousand miles away yeah. i just had to hear what was happening and, and, and endorse them to do it but also saying make sure you're properly protected make sure that you're safe as well for all the staff and uh, make sure that the masks we're um, distributing are, are, are good quality you know so these these are the types of things we were involved with and also we're going to go on to this but you your um, real skills as a fundraiser and so I'm sure you know you were in in London and England um, thinking about how you were going to sustain you know the expenditure of the charity and and a lot of charities were a lot of businesses were you know very concerned about their bottom line um and, and i imagine you know more use for you doing that on a on a really personal level sort of um shavira aside how, how have you found um the lockdown period and the sort of crazy world we live in now on a personal level have, have you found some good out of it all well, I think I think there's all. I'm somebody who always tries to look for the good in situations, um, um, but I also acknowledge that I'm extremely I'm extremely fortunate where I live, the society I've been born into. Um, so, you know, if I look at it, yes, it's been challenging at points in terms of having three small children at home and trying to. Um, and none of my children, my children, all missed the years which went back to school, so they were all in, at home from March till September. Um, but also. You know, I'm lucky. I live in, I live in a nice place in London where I'm happily married. You know, I I feel, and then I'm hearing stories from India of desperation, and I just can't help but thinking, I'm so lucky by the yeah. virtue of where I was born. Mm, you know, so, you know, I, and I also I also think in terms of the good times. You know, George and I have both been working from home, and um, my husband's a lawyer, and he's seen way more of the children. They've absolutely loved that, um, and that's a really wonderful wonderful thing um you know and that that that's been good and i suppose we've all i i i'm a bit of an environmentalist at heart and i'm delighted that people have realized they can do much more over technology um zooms and you know here we are on a podcast rather than necessarily flying to every meeting which which will you know people weren't people weren't changing their behavior with climate change they read about it they hear about it they didn't change their behavior this has forced people to change their behavior. Yeah. So I'm hoping that might that might um, have made people wake up to the fact that things can be done differently. Um, and I've also I've seen the best of humanity, Mark, with my team in India. The absolute best of humanity in terms of selfless, selfless, you know, drive for those people they work for. That they, they've worked tirelessly and they continue to do so. And I've never, I've never had a moment of, can I have a pay rise because I'm working 24-7, nothing like that. I've just had, man, what, they should call me mad, I wish they wouldn't, but they do. What, what, what else can we do? What else can we do? And, you know, it, it's, that, that is, you know, the best of humanity. And, you, you, you know, that's, that, that has to be a positive thing. And is that because they're more used to adversity, like dealing with big floods, big environmental issues hitting India quite frequently, and especially in rural settings is is that um contributing to the attitude it might be i mean um it's actually been quite a 
roller coaster of a nine months since the beginning of this year, um, COVID aside, out in Bengal, um, because we've they've also had a huge cyclone, cyclone Amphan, which hit in May, which caused absolute devastation. Um, on top of the lockdown, there also there was also um, something in December, a government announcement called the Citizenship Amendment Act, which which was seen as an anti-Muslim um, um, act. So so there were. Um, a lot of riots and protests in Bengal, because as we mentioned at the beginning, a lot of people come from Bangladesh. So, you know, the, these people face a lot every day in their lives, you know, a lot of struggle every day. And I think the start, my staff see that. And so when when you see then things like um, their agri, you know, through the, our agricultural program, you know, um, how well they're doing or their, through their poultry um, enterprises or other things they've gone on to do, when that's all been devastated, I think the staff are just so unbelievably motivated to get them back on their two feet again because they've seen how hard they've worked to get there in the first place. Mm. And they can't bear the fact that, you know, all this work could come, have come to nothing. So because they've got to really know the families they, they service extremely well. So I think it's I think it's just literally a, a, a sort of um, heart, a heartfelt response rather than anything else of I can't bear it. This woman has, has worked for so many years to keep her daughter in school. And she's now had to leave because the lockdown, she'll never go back unless we help her get back on her two feet again. So it's that sort of just basic human response. Yeah, no, incredible. And just changing tack for a bit. I mean, actually, want... sorry, on that, on that point, yeah. for me, this is the, probably the biggest sadness of the whole lockdown in India is that millions of children, so at, at the moment, all the schools in India are still, are still um, closed. Everything. So you've got you've got people. Some people will be able to do online zooms, and you know if you can if you're in a position where that you're that's possible. But obviously, in the rural areas, that's obviously not such so um so possible. Mm. But what for me the biggest sadness of all is that millions of children will now drop out because they never go back because they now need to work because all forms of livelihood have been lost. You know, for all those informal sector workers. Who have returned to the villages? Um, you know th th those kids will now be working for sure. Mm. Yeah, and that's that's devastating. And uh, devastating, yeah, devastating because we all know that in life education is the key. Mm. And and all the you know we have at the moment you know we work with six, 16,000 families on our poultry program, and that's just the, the women not doesn't include all the families themselves. And every time you speak to them, their biggest aspiration is for their children to have an education which they didn't have. And so that is, you know, our data shows that over 30% of the women, the first thing they spend any income they make is on their children's education. The, 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 the schooling is, is free, but it's getting to school or it's the uniforms or it's the books or it's the extra pair of shoes for the monsoons they can still go. Or it might be the private tuition so that they actually pass the exams and can stay on school. That's what they're spending their money on. So the fact that, their money now needs to go on, you know, survival um, to make mm. shortfall. Yeah, the shortfall for the fact that their husband's not sending any money home, just exactly survival, as you say, you know, being able to feed their families. It's just heartbreaking to see. Yeah. And that's what's motivating the staff. Yeah. And just uh, changing tact a bit to focus a bit more on you and kind of earlier years. Um, mm. So you, you did uh, a BA in geography at Oxford and then you followed it up with a master's in development and society. Um, I've got that right, haven't I? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Just 
obviously at that point you're already plotting um your your sort of career at that point did you could you envisage um, where you ended up with Shivia founding Shivia yeah so so if I go a step a wee bit further back than my BA um my dad was actually brought up in Calcutta and um grandpa you you would have heard of I think Mother Teresa absolutely um yeah, so she's now a big figure, obviously, which is a saint now, but she, she's a very big figure. But in the 1950s, she was just a lay, ordinary nun who had arrived from Albania to Darjeeling originally and then went down to Calcutta. And my, my, my grandfather was very much part of the Catholic Church, and that's where you know, she went to church. And she had told him about this, 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 him and a few others about this dream of hers. And so he actually helped arrange the funding with these other members of the church for her first ever ambulance. Um, which was going around Calcutta and helping people with leprosy at the time, which was a big issue in Calcutta at the time. And amazingly, you just don't really see leprosy anymore. Um, and so when I was growing up, dad used to tell me all these stories about grandpa and his experiences and going around Calcutta and, you know, basically, you know, be there as seeing teams of people amputating limbs and mother trees. And it was very much part of my childhood hearing about this. And I was always desperate to go. Because dad like, would like be my bedside, my bedtime story from dad every night. And I'd be, dad, please tell me something else about Calcutta. So I was sort of desperate to go. And the first time I had a real opportunity to go was the year before I went to Oxford, um, in between school and university. Right. And so I went out to, in, to Calcutta. And she, but Mother Teresa said, don't come to me. I've got so many volunteers because I'm in the city. And if you're coming for a year, go further afield where people don't tend to go so much. And, and go and um, help a friend of mine, Casey Thomas, who runs a home for abused and abandoned children called Familiar Home. So I basically went there for much of the year. And it was then that I saw how unbelievably poor these women were in, in those villages. And it became quite apparent through all the outreach services Casey ran, but that what these women lacked was access to finance and access to basic skills that they could commoditize. And so that was really the seed for Shivio. I thought, gosh, if these women could access money and learn how to, you know, make these skills into more than just sewing a sari top at home, for example, they wouldn't be living like this. So mm. it really then, then, you know, when I went to university, I based my BA and my master's thesis back out in those villages, looking into this in, 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 in more depth. Um, and it was really quite obvious to me then that there was basically the concept of microfinance, small amounts of money to start up a business. But I didn't know about microfinance then. Yeah. Um, and then, and then I, so when I got back from my, my master's thesis, I said to my dad, dad, I really, really want to start this organization helping these women. We just, I just need to somehow get them some money and some skills they can, you know, turn into businesses and then they won't be living like this. And how old are you at this he point? Said, I was, uh, early 20s, okay. 20. Yeah. So I said, I said, and dad said, looked him in the eye and said, darling, there is no point trying to give people skills unless you don't have, unless you have no skills yourself, if you have no skills yourself. And I said, oh, okay. He said, I suggest you go and get some skills, figure out how the work world works a bit, and then, and then start something. Cause he said, you also can't run an NGO, which is what this is clearly going to be from the heart. If you want it to survive, you have to run it like a business. You have to be able to, you know, um, fund, raise money. And to raise money, you need to be able to speak the, 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 the business speak. You need to be able to speak the language of people giving you the money. 
you also need a network so you can um you know uh, bring bring the best skills to your organization and and you need um um and you need the i suppose you need the experience yourself so that's when i went to the world bank in washington dc and i had the most extraordinary extraordinary time there it was it was unbelievable training unbelievable networking and it really opened my eyes to certainly how international development is done from a top down approach yeah cuz you're real, um, you're a real high achiever ollie like you know not only did you you know, smash distinction first class honors at, at Oxford Uni, which just getting into Oxford's huge. Um, but you know, you you wherever you go, you achieve. One thing I always struck me is you really did understand the languages business, and you totally did utilize those networks or and that language and that understanding, um, and kind of bridging, uh, you know, two worlds for me through through that. Um, and it, it's interesting to hear that that was you know motivated by your dad and and very deliberate were, were you was pleasing your dad high in your agenda or actually he just gave you um some really good advice and you took it on board yeah I don't think I've ever particularly wanted to please my dad I <laughs> I think I just have huge respect for him um so I I, I mean I, I obviously I'm 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 pleased if he's pleased but I I, I sort of I, I that was never really my um motivation to please him because actually I think dad dad was in more the business world and private equity and I think he was always always maybe thought that I was going to be the one who might go out there and make some money but he made it became pretty quickly that wasn't my motivation because you ended Um, up yeah because you ended up after the so you're in Washington for what 2004 2006 or a little bit longer well I I I was in Washington for those years so Mm. I I worked under Jim Wolfenson who was you know under his tenure who was the president at the time and um, and I worked for this remarkable woman, Catherine Marshall, who was you know, directly reported to him. And she gave me every opportunity there was, was to give. But after I left DC, so he then, so the, what, the president of the World Bank is a political appointment by the president of the US. So Wolfenson was appointed by Bill Clinton. So it's quite a Democrat, you know, institution when I was there, which probably um, is sort of how I think. And then the next chap, Paul Wolfowitz, was appointed by Bush. And the whole bank changed very, very quickly. And Jim Wolfenson said to me, Ollie, you've had the experience, you, you've, you've had the opportunities, now get out and, and get out there, go and do an MBA or go and work in the city and then set up this organization you've been telling me about for three years. He said, but if you don't leave now, I assure you, you'll stay here forever. Mm. So I was like, okay. So he gave me the push. He said, yeah. he said this is your chance because the World Bank is the kind of place where you can just end up working there forever. And you, know, you can forget your dream because it's a very exciting place to work. Um, so, so that's, that was, that was why I, I left and came back here, but I still, I still very much kept in touch with all my World Bank colleagues and was often lured into calls, you know, on certain things. So I felt I was part of the World Bank scene for longer than those, those years. Yeah. But when I came back, came back to London, I, um, I joined Accenture Strategy just to get those business skills I didn't have. Um, and really basic skills, Mark, I'm talking about, like basic PowerPoint, basic budgets, basic, how to use Excel which has been extremely useful. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, I didn't have any idea about how to do all these things. So, so I, um, I um, worked at Accenture and they were unbelievably supportive because they knew from day one what my, um, what my intention was. So they were very supportive. And in between consulting projects, they allowed me to go off to India. Fantastic. To set up Chevy at the same time. And then Mark... Mark Spellman, who was head of strategy, corporate strategy at the time, 
um, I did say to him, um, Mark, you know, I, um, I now need to go part-time because Chevy is becoming bigger and I, um, I need more time to do it, but I also need to be able to pay my bills, my mortgage. So I also need my extension salary. So he was brilliant and let me go part-time to, to sort of bridge that, you know, um, um, gap between the corporate and, and the charity world. Yeah. Now that's a great position to be in and tough, um, Accenture life in terms of, you know, demanded a lot, um, bar was set high, you learned a lot. So that was 2006 to 2009 or, uh, sorry, 2008, something like that. Sorry, say that again, Mark. So you were there for that, almost three years, was it, at Accenture? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so at Accenture was 2006 to 2009 and then I did do a bit of, um, of um, part-time work as well after for that, again, bridging this gap. Mm. I think the early stages of a charity startup are incredibly difficult, aren't they? Because you're, you know, it's trying to find um, the time, then the money for the early seed funding. And, you know, you've got to convince somebody to um, help you start up. So, you, interesting, because when I look at your LinkedIn, pro- LinkedIn profile, you um, don't describe yourself as, the, as a founder or even a co-founder of Shivia. Why is that? I don't know. I, I think I think that um, I probably I try and make sure we're not about me. Probably is what it is. I think it's we now you know at the big early days you might be the founder, but then you get to a point where it's got a life of its own, and you're and you're just sort of very much part of the team. And and the founding days are sort of feel like you know over a decade ago. Um, so I think it's probably more that it's just we're all a team, just doing our best rather than over reliant on one person yeah and a crucial there was one, one person in particular who was crucial in the early days isn't it um and was that uh Sudeshna? is that right were they crucial who, who was the, the bridge to west bengal in terms of the early shavia days so so well the, the the bridge to the west bengal days was really was really um my you know my my time out out sure there. Um, so that was that was really the you know the key was was sort of me living there and actually the, the person who was who really helped us get going in West Bengal was actually Casey Thomas from you know familiar home I told you about where I stayed in in the year between school and university in the in the very early days when I realised we needed an organisation in Bengal itself um, um, you know he he helped me um, recruit the first staff from the villagers. He, he actually, we set up our first office, um, you know, in the premises of Familiar Home. And um, he got all the goodwill and the trust from the local communities to actually join the programs. So he was absolutely instrumental. Um, and then the High Commissioner in Calcutta introduced me to Vasant, who um, is, is our chairman to this day of our local organization. And he was also crucial uh, helping me, you know, build that board and, and, and the, um, the structures in Bengal. So those those were two very crucial people, and then on this side in the UK, you know, we have our board of trustees and Stuart Tester, who was our. I met him at Doha actually at a conference. He became our chairman, and he was um, for ten years. He was the chairman. He was absolutely wonderful and very level-headed. And when I had mad mad ideas and wanted to go off left, right, and centre, he um he always you know um, reined me back in again. Um, so he was he was superb, and we both built up a very good balance board together and then 
Um, I think other, you know, Yasmin Hilton has now taken over as, as the chair and she's been the chair for nearly two years now. And she was the ex um, chairman of Shell in India. So she's got a, she's got a, you know, um, a lot of experience, A, working in India and B, um, you know, just as a um, what head of Shell, you know, governance, mm. which her role is corporate governance. So she's amazing. There, there, there have been a lot of, you know, individuals who have really um, helped, helped a lot, you know, because I couldn't have done it on my own. And I was just thinking, I paused because I was thinking actually someone I should have mentioned was, was um, Brooke Johns, who I met him at a, just at a drinks party in the very early days of Shivia. He was much older and he told me he'd just retired as an accountant. And I was like, are you being serious? And I said, yes. I said, well, so what are you doing now? And he said, nothing. I'm just looking forward to um, my retirement. And I said, well, because I really need an accountant because I've just set up this charity and I, I, you know, I don't know how to do accounts and I don't know how to do. And, and he became the company secretary the next day. And he, he was the man I would give a lot of credit to. He never took any credit, but he helped me form the, the early budgets and the, business, the idea of business plans. And he helped to sort of, you know, um, do all the minutes of meetings. And, and, you know, actually to this day, we use all the templates that Brooke set up 12 years ago. Mm. And he was just so dedicated and wonderful. And, he, and he, he's also got, he got the benefit of um, age and experience, which I think I certainly... Still, hopefully, don't have too much of. But, <laughs> but I, certainly, I certainly didn't have any any of that at the beginning. And I think when you're young, you 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 know you're so um, desperate to get it all going, charging around. And and he just sometimes said, just slow down and get it right. Mm. It sort of struck me actually. You, you've gone for, you know, as I said, we've kind of known each other for six or seven years, and, you, and it looks like you've gone for quality over quantity. So the you know the scale of the issues and with Bengal or in India are, are big and the, the sort of more you can do the better but actually it strikes me that you've gone for because you've got an incredibly impressive list of supporters which you've developed and board members but you've gone for sort of quality over 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 size or, or more 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 would that be fair yeah I think I think that's right actually and that this is a, this is a this is a um a continual board level discussion we have quantity versus quality and um do we do we help our communities a bit more or do we help many more people a little bit less? And certainly for the first 10 years, we focused on the former, which is let's just really make sure that anyone we help really gets out of poverty in a sustainable way. On, and, and we help them to help themselves and to stay there. So that was really the driving force. But, but to be honest with you, now, now we've got a bit bigger you know, we have we have um, quite a few organisations asking us now, you know, can we replicate what you do where we are? And I think, Mark, that's a, probably in our case, a more effective way of, of scaling our impact rather than setting up Shivia or our local organisation, Nerd, in, in other states and other places, which is costly, time consuming, the regulation, um, having to recruit staff, all these things. My my feeling, very strong feeling, especially in the COVID world where we all have to tighten our belts a bit, is let's not keep setting up ourselves over and over and over again. Let's just stop other organisations reinventing the wheel and wasting resources doing so and, and work together with other organisations, imparting knowledge, imparting experience and, and, and 
um, replicating the models to to expand that way instead. Yeah, and that, that that's what we're beginning to do. So we've had we had conversations, for example, with the Tata Group, you know, Tatas yeah. in India, and they they support many many NGOs. So if they take our the manuals we put together on the agriculture and the poultry, and we're going to do the same for the goats, take those and we consult them and all their organisations about how to replicate the models, tweaking them to local contexts. They can then roll out roll out the, the the programs where they are, with their existing staff, with their existing infrastructure, existing resources, and the impact will be huge. And is that what you so, talked about, social franchise franchising that franchising model? Um, I think yeah. you mentioned your LinkedIn profile. Yeah. Yeah. So I talked about social franchising. The, the other big debate we have at the board level is: Do we charge for the service or not? Do you charge a consulting fee, or or are you are you um, actually doing it in the spirit of of, of of helping many more people and I think it probably ends up depending who you're talking to because some you know some companies um might might charge a consulting fee too and others if you're just if you're helping NGOs to replicate the model maybe it will just become you know, just be within the spirit of of we just want to help help people and and that is our motivation yeah um so that so the social franchising bit um is that's probably why I put the word social in because it doesn't necessarily, it's not commercial franchising. Yeah, yeah, and no, I think it's a good term. I mean, it strikes me when having met you and your, um, you know, your mission from very young age, you had a very solid um, ambition, you knew what you wanted to do, which is quite rare, I think. Not, not many people your age were so clear about what they wanted to do. Um, but it is your um, ability, your, I think your passion comes through and then your ability to communicate people with all different um you know, stratas of life. Where are you more comfortable? House of Commons at your fundraising event or in West Bengal? Or are you, you know, what's, where is Ollie Donnelly most at home? Ollie Donnelly is happiest in the villages with the women. Like, I, I mean, for me, as I, I mentioned, um, the lady with the hands earlier, I, 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 I'm happiest sitting with a cup of tea on the roadside cafe, you know, in her little roadside cafe, because she's, well, she's amazing. Sorry, her, she, she with her poultry enterprise um, has started a little roadside cafe whereby, you know, she sells um, omelettes and toast to trucks going past. She's got, and she's now got this brilliant business and she's making, she's doing extremely well. So I, I'm really happy at sitting talking to someone like her and hearing her story. And, and she's now a role model inspiring others in the village. So it's just, remarkable um and i just love it with my team I, I i i find i find i learn a lot from them and i find it very motivating and actually every time i go out to india and i'm with the team and with the the families we're working with my motivation levels in terms of raising funds and um, it just goes up tenfold um because sometimes when you're at this end you're sort of hitting your head against a brick wall and just thinking oh it's so exhausting trying to raise money from people who don't really get it. Whereas when you're there, you yeah. feel it. There's a big yeah. difference. So, I, so where am I happiest? I am happiest there in terms of um, um, feel, feeling it. I don't, mind, I don't mind being in the House of Commons and the House of Lords and all, all these places because it's kind of what I have to do to earn the money. Um, and you were very generous earlier when you said you, you're, you're a skilled fundraiser. I, I, I still didn't even think of myself as a fundraiser, to be honest. You know, I know that's part of what I have to do to make this whole, this whole thing happen. But I've never considered myself a fundraiser before. 
I've, I've just always considered myself, you know, well, yes, starting Shivya and just working with the team and the families to just always try and improve our services to get those people out of poverty. And that, that's, what, that's what occupies my thoughts every day, rather than I need to earn this, I need to raise this much money. How am I going to raise it digital, you know, online fundraise? I don't, I don't really think about that so much. I know I have to do it. But it doesn't, it's not, it's not as if I have a job yeah. spec with that in it, if that I makes think sense. you're good at, you've um, been, you're great at building partnerships and, and sort of that mutually benefiting. Um, do, do you find frustrate? do you find uh, fundraising or some of the um, hoops that people put you through quite frustrating? Because it is relentless fundraising, isn't it? And it, um, pe- people don't necessarily <laughs> give you the respect. It's the time lags, it's the time lags which is difficult because you see a real pressing need. You see, so we mentioned the huge, the huge, the huge need. And, you know, as you say, we're only a drop in the ocean. Um, but, but, you know, talking about Mother Teresa earlier, you know, we might be a drop in the ocean, but it's better than not being, not being mm. there at all. You know, and, and so I see this pressing need. I hear from the team how much more we can do. I hear, you know, I know, I know because we do have very strict, we do have very thorough um, you know, selective processes in place and an impact impact measurement process in place. So it's, it's all it's all quite professional at that end in terms of knowing what we what we are achieving. So I know it all, and I and I and then and then you're trying to raise money, and a lot of the time people either ask questions that aren't relevant because it's through their reference point, um, or the context is so different. Sitting in an office with with you know, air conditioning blurring away, fancy this, fancy that. And you're thinking about a woman in her house made of mud with a snake probably just outside because the, the monsoon dripping and she's thinking about how she can feed her family tomorrow. Mm, yeah. And, you, and, and, and the, the, the gaps just seem so vast. And then you see people saying, so in your budget, this, 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 this cost here of of you know 500 pounds whatever and you just think well that i wouldn't put it in there unless it wasn't needed yeah yeah you know we try we try we try and run a really strict budget and we're i'm I'm, you know and i make sure that you know every penny is spent well so that's the other thing i sometimes slightly struggle with people sort of um you know over here it's sort of you know maybe I don't know. I mean, obviously they had the right to ask questions. It's their money and it's their hard-earned money, which is the other side of it. Of course they need to ask questions. But sometimes you feel, gosh, there's just the bridge is so big, it's quite hard to get people on the same yeah. page here. I, and, then, and, then, and then, you know, foundations take so long to decide that often by the time they give you the money, the need is gone or you've moved on. Yeah. And, <laughs> because you found it somewhere else because it was needed then. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of, that's a different For me, it, it needs to move to more of a trusted relationship model you know like more trust of the NGO it does Mark you know because also if you're going to if you know if you're going to run it like a business and if you're going to have you know if you have a proper board in place and a a, a very committed team who are motivated by what we do we're not going to we're not going to waste the money we're not going to but we we also do know where the money needs to be spent so when people start not trusting you and saying I want you I'm going to give you this money much money but I'm, I'm going to restrict it to this and you know and it has to be spent within these time frames it's actually very hard to run a business like that because you think, well, they've restricted it to that, and but we don't actually need to do that right now. 
because this has happened and we need to address this right now, but we can't spend that money because it's restricted. Yeah. We now need to go and raise money to actually spend what we do need to spend. And that makes it a bit challenging too. But I, then again, on the flip side, I do understand people give money because they're motivated by their own passions. And if their passion seems to be the agriculture um, and we and they only want to spend it on certain parts of the agriculture, you know, that, that's what they want to yeah. spend it on. But it might not be what is needed yeah, at that time. absolutely. And it is a, it's a wacky dance at times, isn't it? Um, I, I think whatever whatever is going on though you're very good at it and um you know i could just see that the relationships you have with the corporates have been supporting you or the individuals have have lasted and endured um so i think you're very good at impact reporting you're very you're very good at your partners with the cause and you know when when your donors have said they want to come out and see and believe and and what's been your approach to kind of going out to country and going out to West Bengal and taking them with you and how do you approach that? Well, I think I think that the first thing I'm always very mindful of is that my job my team have a job to do and they work very hard providing their service. So when people come out, it immediately takes time away from what they should be doing. So I I only I I offer it to people who are genuinely committed to the cause and who I genuinely believe we have a partnership with. Because, you know, the, the, the whole thing works when you have the funds, the strategy and the implementing team coming together as a true partnership. It's not, we're not running a tourist business. And a lot of people come out because it's fascinating and it's amazing and it's wonderful and they're inspired and you never hear from them again. So I've become much more candid about the fact that we are running a service. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a 24-hour service, basically. And so if someone comes out... It's because they're part of that. They're part of that team. They might be, you know, in name, for example, the St. James's Place Foundation. Actually, they haven't been, but, you know, St. James's Place Foundation, for example. But actually, I see them as part of our team because the funding is crucial. So when you, when you look at it through that lens, it, it, it feels different. And see, the approach is, so Artemis is my best example of that because they now run a, a family field trip out to um, our, our operations once a year. So they, they enable staff to go but also um, a member of the star's family, like a, a young child who might live in a bit of a bubble and needs their eyes exposing, you know, they need their eyes open to how the real world lives. And we approach that very much as um, you know, it's a week a year. And actually my staff find it very motivating because they know Artemis are really committed. And we have our annual awards ceremony when they come. So they actually, so the, the kids hand out the awards to the, to the staff, you know, because they're, motivated by this kind of thing to start they've they love feeling valued so it might be recognizing someone who's the best performer for the training for the poultry or it might be the the um the member of staff who has created the most government links in terms of the agriculture this Correct. year so that that week is very very structured it's, it's thought through it's very well planned and but it but it but it adds value to everybody you know artemis tell me that they um that they it's changed their lives and their kids' lives for, for all the reasons which are probably quite obvious. You know, they've seen things they've never seen. They've been inspired by just the sheer resilience of these people. Um, they're inspired by the team, how hard they work. My team find it motivating that people would come 6,000 miles away to properly be with them. And we get, them to, we get the kids to do some of the social impact assessments, to talk to the farmers from focus groups. So they feel it, that the, 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 the artists are really committed and and we know that we know that 
everybody's benefited. Yeah. So that works really well. I'm not so good at saying to someone, yeah, 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 come out for an internship for a month where I next thing is I had to hire translators for them. We have to take them in Jeeps because we don't, we don't travel by Jeep when we're there. We travel by local train and rickshaw. But as soon as visitors come, you have to put on a whole different yeah. show. Um, and so I've just become a bit more um, candid about the motivations of people who are coming and what they're actually doing. Yeah. When they're I there. love the idea of creating a spark, like the spark you had through your father and through those stories and through those early experiences, that early visit. Well, you know, it's funny, actually, that some of those kids, so those kids, so basically the Artemis thing happened because um, they sent out every year five or six staff to our operations. But some of the staff couldn't make it because even though Artemis funds the staff to go, they have to take holiday to go on these charity trips. So Lindsay, who's the, 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 one of the founders of Artemis and the chair of the foundation, said to me, I just don't know what to do about this because some of the great staff who really want to come can't. And I said, well... Don't, we've got to find a solution then, bring the kids too. Brilliant. And he said, would that, would that be possible? I said, well, we'll make it possible. So, so they, then the children now apply to come to make sure they're actually interested, not just being dragged along by their parents. They apply to come and they get selected with a parent and they come out. And some, it's, it is amazing, Mark, seeing the kids at the beginning of the week. So 40, they're between the ages of 14 and 16, you know, get old enough to get it not be overwhelmed by poverty in in, in the same way but young enough where they wouldn't necessarily be traveling on their own and they arrived at the beginning of the week so slightly sullen slightly quiet not saying much not that you know probably haven't read all the materials we sent them by the end of the week they're engaged there and their parents say i've never seen my child like this ever i've never seen because i don't see them at school i've never seen them ask questions i've never seen them engaged like this they haven't looked at their mobile phone for days, you know, then all we glued That's a miracle. And I, yeah, and they said, and, and I've had emails from these kids after saying, um, Ollie, what do I need to do to, to, to one day work for Shivia? Fantastic. And one thing that really strikes me about you actually is your, there's no hint of founder syndrome and the normal sort of stereotype of a founder syndrome. But I guess what I do know or suspect is that Shivia's uh, the charity's very abilities and skills, um, but but because you know what you've told me around not trying to scale but trying to replicate through the franchising potential, um, that seems less of a less of a big risk, and that um, you know there will there will be somebody to fill your shoes. Um, at, do you think that's true? If you decide to do something else, well, I've all I've always. Um, always in my mind, I've always thought this can't be about me because if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, it needs to continue. Um, and also, you know, I'm or one day I might just I just might not be the right person to run it anymore. You know, I just might run out of energy, or I might I just might not be the right person. So I've always tried to I've always tried to set up Shivia in a way that um, you know to keep it lean so that we're um, most money is going to the end, you know, where we're meant to be spending it. But to have enough delegated so that if I disappeared for some reason, it would keep going without me. And I, I could, all I can give the example of is I have had three maternity leaves in 10 years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and I took yeah. them. I mean, I checked in, but I took them and it carried yeah. on. And it's, and, um, you know, and I don't thankfully plan to have any more maternity leaves. 
But I, you know, but I'm now in a situation where, you know, the last six months I have had to homeschool my children as well as run Shivia. So, and it's carried on. So um, I, I do try and I've got an extremely good board um, who, 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 who know from day one when they join, they're not doing this to have a trustee tick in the box on their CVs. They're doing this because they care about this. Yeah. And they've all stepped, they've all, they've all always stepped up. And I tell you something, Mark, in, in 12 years, I can count the number of times on my hand that a trustee has missed a board meeting. So you're formidable. Um, you're formidable. And- I think, um, yeah, because that board CEO director of relationship is absolutely crucial. And I think that's often where it comes unstuck, uh, at, you know, in the charity sector, that relationship, but also around uh, expectations both ways. And it's great that you set the bar that high. Um, that's is that taking is that always been the case? It's always just I mean, you're so passionate about it that you wouldn't allow for anything else, would you? Well, I, I just I just I can't imagine anyone working with me who's not passionate about it. So like if 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 in an interview I don't feel the passion, I, I just they're just not gonna be part of the team. So so I think I think by the virtue of you know, you, you feel again it's a it's a gut feeling about someone, you know. I actually really don't care, you know. I, I wouldn't care if someone came to me with no education at all, no skills, no education, nothing. If they said to me, I just want to be part of this, just tell me what I have to do. You know, if I felt that they just, I wouldn't care where they come from, nothing. If I felt that the, that the, um, the drive was there, you know, cause you can train people up and you can, you can, you can, um, you know, you can get, you can, well, I've, what I've learned through the, through the amazing women we work with, you can, you can train people to have skills. You can train people to um, um, gain knowledge. But, we, we, but what's hard to instill in someone is that drive, that real passion. Yeah. So it's there or it's not. And you've just got to be able to, you've just got to, I, said, I suppose that is probably my better skill than fundraising is being able to um, um, spot in people whether, whether the, the true drive is there, but the motivation is there. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, um, I, I feel... Um, very proud of how my um, board and, and, and team. I mean, you know, right now I work with Victoria, who, who's just, she's just so wonderful. She's got no ego. She just gets on with the job. Yeah, I, I often know? think with with women in leadership roles, and the, the ego, there is just ego just doesn't get in the way. That's my been in my experience. Um, and you know, well, well we, we talk about we. I noticed. I noticed. Um, I, I heard a podcast a while ago. And I and I don't want to gender gender stereotypes. I've I've worked with many incredible men, and and many of them and I work with don't have an ego. But I did hear this person speaking, saying it's very interesting when you hear men speaking in a meeting and they talk about I. When you hear women speaking, it's often we. Yeah. And since when someone points something out to you, sometimes you then can't stop hearing it. And I've, I've I now often hear. When Victoria speaks, or maybe I speak, or Yasmin speaks, or any of the women, it's, it's it's always we we think this or we felt that because I just don't think you're you're centerpiece. I think it's sort of a team. Mm. We're part of a team, and it doesn't really matter whose idea it was. It doesn't matter as long as it's furthering our cause, you know. Or it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Yeah. And I I think that's I think that's um something which. I love about the people we, you know, you, you've met Chandrani, haven't you, in, in, in Bengal? Yes, I have you, actually. Had, yeah, 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 no, I have. I've yeah. been to one of your events. Yeah. I mean, 
she is just the most remarkable woman and she has she she single-handedly has changed many thousands of women's lives not because the service we run not because anything else but because you know just regardless of caste and class and background and education when she's with those women she's just one of those women and she'll sit with them for hours and hours she has no idea the impact she makes on their lives the fact that someone in their eyes so busy so important so educated from a higher caste from Calcutta has come and sat with them for hours and hours and hours with without ever making them feel that she has to she's too busy and has to be someone else somewhere else changes their life yeah. it really does do what a thread on because I've had some amazing conversations and uh, podcast leading up to this one and this is equally as as brilliant and the thread i think on a lot of those is actually kindness so the currency of kindness and compassion mm. those those two things yeah. which you've just described there and i know shivia is built on uh and you know and in, and in this world well, someone you need to talk to someone you need to talk to is pinky lilani um she runs something called women of the future network and she um she is all about the importance of kindness and she even identifies 12 people in business a year who she calls the lights of kindness or something and she she's the most extraordinary woman and she she oozes kindness and inspires many other people with it yeah it's you know it's a network it's it is a is a great thing to give and we're going to start moving uh towards finishing this interview and um mainly because I want to give, give you your life back. And uh, I know you've got some homeschooling to do, uh, <laughs> unfortunately. So, um, yeah, just quickly on that. So children were, Mar- was it March to September, you had three kids all at home in the house, both you and your husband working, um, which, is, which is tough stuff. But you've got one child back, two back at school, one child back in the house. And, um, you know, so you've, you've, you're busy and I don't want to hold you back from that. But just as a final question really was around your advice to somebody in your shoes who's either, you know, heading out of university, wanting to start up a charity in that inter- international development space. Um, what, what would be your advice to a young Ollie Donnelly slash voucher? I think my advice would probably be the advice my dad gave me and it's held true for all those years, 20 years, which is, you know, just get get some skills yourself and get some training, get some contacts, learn from people you're around. I mean, when I went to the World Bank, every opportunity I took in terms of training, I mean, I, I you know, almost obsessively signed up to everything. And I went to every event I could be at because I think you learn a lot from people. Listening, listening is a big, a big um skill or not I wouldn't say skill it shouldn't be a skill it should be something you do just listen to people's experiences listen to what how they got to where they got to because you learn a lot that way and listen to people's mistakes and that's that would be the other thing I would say Mark is that it's okay to go wrong I mean Shavia had some full starts along the way early on and and just to have the humility to to say okay I've tried it it just didn't work I'm really sorry it didn't work and be able to, rather than just you know plowing on because you 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 know you're too proud to to um, not plow on. I mean, we actually started in microfinance, and within two years, I realised that the impact I thought we were making was not actually the impact on the ground at all. And I was actually 
I, um, APAC's private equity were supporting us at that point. And I had to go to them and say, don't, don't give us the money mm. because we're not making the impact you think we're making. They were shocked. They were like, what do you mean? Microfinance is the poverty one, you know, one to poverty alleviation. I said, no, I thought it was too, but it's not. So what I'd love the money for instead is to do a year's worth of research to work out why microfinance isn't working where we are and what we need to do to help these people instead. Mm. And I think that advice I would give people is it's okay if something doesn't work out. Yeah. Um, the other advice I would, would, would give is, is um, I mean, if I, if I look at now all the challenges we, um, you know, we, we have faced, and if I'd written, written them all out, I, I probably would have, um, you know, been put off starting Shivia because, you know, we've got the challenges of politics in Bengal, regulation, corruption, bribery, bureaucracy. We mentioned early, early operational challenges such as natural um, challenges, you know, whether it's the flooding, the monsoons, cyclones, and now COVID. And then, you meant, then we have the financial challenges of, you know, sometimes you're faced with recession, um, the fundraising becomes hard. And now with COVID, fundraising is practically impossible because all events are, are um, being cancelled. If you, if you listed all that, you think, oh my God, I, there's no way I can start this organisation because it's going to be impossible. But actually, if you really, really, really care about something and you're really, really passionate about it, the impossible does become possible because you make it so. Yeah, good advice. And you started Shivia during a massive financial yeah, crisis. Yeah, I started. I started I, everyone told, Mark, everybody told me in 2008, Ollie, you would be mad to leave Accenture now, a secure job where you're doing well, to start up a charity when we're entering the worst recession in years. CSR budgets being cut, people are losing their jobs, you would be mad. And I said, but the problem is, timing's never right. No. For anything. I mean, I, you know, people said, oh, don't, you know, you'd be mad to have a bit of your first child now because Shivya's just getting going. You can't choose these things sometimes. You just got to, if you want to do something, just get on with it. Yeah, I, I think that's... And I, you know, and often, often, often in downturns, opportunities arise so you know some of the people who helped me in the early days of Chevy were able to because because they were less busy at work because of the recession you know yeah. um you know I, I i found that i found that because of because of in the early days the recession you know i had to i had to make sure my pitching was better because there was more competition yeah yeah and it ups, it ups you your know, game and i mean you know it's taking a, a long long game long view on things isn't it often and um you had the passion and drive you you know you weren't going to be um stopped in but that. i didn't see it I, I didn't see this as a, as a five-year thing mm. i saw this as okay this is this is something which i hope will be going for years i mean years beyond me and that's so 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 what if it takes 10 years to get right because then it will last and just so just all awesome um conversation thanks so much for joining me um i've just one thing's just gnawing away at me and just just really quickly if i might if I, it's okay just to, wh why didn't um microfinance work in that in that area what, what were the oh mark i could give you i could give you an hour-long lecture on this one <laughs> we, do, we, do, we could do that another time maybe. <laughs> yeah i know mean, I, I can tell you very very quickly you know basically microfinance is the concept of giving people small amounts of money to start up a business. And, you know, you, and it, it's based on the premise that people are entrepreneurs. Most people aren't. 
So you give someone some money, start up a business. Most people just like earning a salary, the security of it. That's the first thing. The second thing is it was spun as a woman's business. Unless you engage the men, the women don't like it. And they take the money away anyway. Now we, with the poultry, we actually, I talk about giving the poultry toolkits to the women, but we train the whole family and get the men's buy-in before we provide any toolkit. It's instrumental. The third thing is in India at the time, you know, microfinance had always been very much based on the Grameen Bank's model. You know, the Muhammad Yunus, the model of people forming small self-help groups so that if you, you, and, you and I were in the same group, your banana business fairs and my basket business thrives, I, I will help you out because we're in the same group. So you don't have any collateral, but you have something called social collateral. Mm. But at the time in India, microfinance was becoming commercialized. So people like um, some, some of the organizations you might have heard of, SKS, for example, said, no, we can make money out of this as well as helping the poor. But the problem with that is that to make, to make money, you have to, you have to um, um, provide a lot of loans and you have to get the cost down. So the first thing that went was the training. And the most important thing in microfinance is the training because these women have no idea of running businesses or what to start or how to do it. So the moment you cut the training, it all fails. So suddenly these women were part of many groups because they, were, they had all these loans available to them. Mm. And so the social collateral went and the whole model collapsed. Yeah. And yeah, the other thing, of course, is that the, other, the most important thing I probably of all is that a lot of people started what I would call supply-driven businesses, things they'd always done, but the market demand wasn't there. So they would all be weaving baskets and no one to buy them. Mm. So they ended up being in debt. Whereas what we do is we spent a year researching where is there a huge demand? And poultry, everyone eats chicken, whether you're Hindu, Muslim, Christian, unless you're a vegetarian, but you know, as a, as a general, everyone in that part of India eats chickens. Um, and the demand is increasing. They all can you know, rely on eggs. If they can't sell the produce, at least they can eat it. Rather than a basket sitting rotting in the corner of the house, they can consume it. So it's sort of money, money saved as money earned type principle. Yeah. So, so that so for us, microfinance didn't work because the women were taking out loans. They weren't make starting enterprises where there was a market demand. And most of the time, as soon as the loan officer turned his back, the men took the money anyway. Yeah. And they ended up in debt. Yeah. Yeah. No, God, you can. Say, That's an hour in two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you did exceptionally well. Um, yeah. Massive <laughs> thank you for joining me. Um, and uh, good luck for the rest of the year. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for, um, for contacting me. I was, I was very touched that you did. Yeah, um, thanks, Ollie. That was awesome. A big thank you for listening to tonight's episode. I really, really enjoyed my conversation with Ollie. It was great to catch up after all these years. And I'm not exaggerating. Ollie and I could have talked for another hour. Like, n- not every podcast is like that because it can be quite tiring for the guests. But... Um, that just shows the level of energy she has and we could easily have talked for another hour. In fact, I'm going to do a follow-up interview with her and um, just see, you know, once COVID settles down and, and well, hopefully it settles down and, um, you know, see how Shivia evolves over the next couple of years. So, yeah, thanks for listening. If you can help me grow my audience and, and you like what you're hearing, I really appreciate it. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts if that's what you're listening through. Share with a friend, a colleague, someone you know who has a real passion for doing good or uh, our sector. Uh, Thanks for listening. 
Have a good day or evening, wherever you are, and we'll catch up for the next episode. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. I hope you like what you're hearing. Please subscribe and leave a review.